This morning we're going to depart from our regular series in Genesis, which we were in during the last hour, and I want to preach to you from Isaiah chapter 2. I invite you to turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Isaiah. Our text is going to be the very last verse in this chapter, but that verse is intimately uh, grounded in everything that is in the first part of the chapter, the first 21 verses. And so I want to read all the way down to our text, which is verse 22, the whole chapter, Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of the Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And now if there's a switch in tenor, having spoken of God's salvation and our need to walk in God's law, he comes to a different note. Verse 6, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of the foreigners. The land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. The land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock. And now he's speaking to the people. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. and The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the ragged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory 
of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Then our text, sever, or it could be translated, cease yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? Before we look at these words, let's now pray for God's help. Almighty God, as we have read a very solemn portion of your word, we pray that the solemnity of what you have to say to your people would descend upon us during this hour. We pray, Lord, that we would not resist what you would have to say to us through this prophet. And we do pray, O Lord, that you would be pleased by your spirit to deal with each one of us according to our particular need. And deal with us as a congregation according to our corporate needs. We pray for your help, O Lord. What can we say? What can we do if you were not in it? Help, O Lord, in our weakness. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Isaiah's prophetic ministry was carried out in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He prophesied for, through four reigns a long time. An Indian summer, which lasted for some 50 years, ended with the death of King Uzziah in 740 B.C. And after this, for both Israel in the north and for Judah in the south, there followed a century of invasion by a series of predatory Assyrian kings. And Isaiah witnessed the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel under this Assyrian onslaught. But for some time, the southern kingdom of Judah continued to withstand these Assyrian aggressions. And the most famous deliverance, it comes toward the end of Isaiah's ministry, that time during the reign of Hezekiah when the angel of the Lord went forth at night and slew 185,000 invading Assyrians in one night. But in spite of that deliverance even, all was not well in Judah. Judah was rapidly descending into apostasy. Israel's fall was an object lesson that should have instructed Judah, but Judah did not learn the lesson well. In the not-too-distant future, the Babylonians would capture Jerusalem, and they would take the people of God into captivity. And many times, Isaiah speaks of that event. And the prophet's message is therefore of judgment, suffused with the promise of restoration after that judgment. And in the chapter that we read, and in the rest of the book, we learn that the coming in judgment is going to be God's response to two great sins, the sin of idolatry and the sin of trusting in man. Now it is the latter of these sins, the sin of trusting in man, that is the focus of our text. Notice again what we read in verse 22. Sever or cease yourselves from such a man or from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? One of Judah's inveterate sins was the sin of looking to man for deliverance. In Isaiah's day, for example, this was the sin of King Ahaz, who turned to Assyria to get help against the threat of Israel and, and, and Syria. And then in chapter 31, he speaks of the prophet speaks of another time. He reproves Judah for sending messengers 
this time not to the north but to the south, to Egypt, seeking help from Egypt rather than from the Lord. And after spending the bulk of his time here in this chapter 2, warning Judah of the coming judgment, Isaiah's concluding lesson, it can be boiled down to three words, the title of our sermon, Cease from Man. And because Judah's sin consisted in giving too great a place for man in their esteem, the New American and the English Standard, they translate this concluding exhortation, stop regarding man. A very good translation as well. A literal translation would be give up on man. Commentator John Oswald's translation, it also captures the sense, be done with man. The implication, of course, is that God's people have given up on God. Instead, they should have given up on man instead of giving up on God. Man's tendency, you see, in every age, even in our own age, this is the sin of making man the center of all things and looking to man for the solution of all of our problems. Therefore, the burden of my sermon this morning is this. Stop glorying in and placing your confidence in man. This is the great lesson of the second chapter of Isaiah. As we consider this lesson, as time allows, we're going to see that it was first a well-founded lesson, second a difficult lesson, and then a sensible lesson, a religious lesson, and finally a practical lesson. You notice first of all that this was a well-founded lesson. In this chapter, Isaiah stresses two great themes, the themes of salvation and of judgment. And the lesson that concludes the chapter, therefore, it's rooted in these divine realities of divine salvation and divine judgment. And I want you to notice, first of all, what we see in verses 2 through 4 concerning salvation. The salvation of Isaiah's prophecy, he tells us, it's going to come in the latter days or in the last days, verse 2. And the period that is intended in these last days, the phrase that's used in other places in the book of Isaiah and also in the Old Testament, it's the gospel age. It's the age of the Christian church that began its age with the first advent of the Lord Jesus. And from the perspective of the apostles, the coming of Christ and the sending of the Spirit, it signals these last days. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, Peter declares that what was happening was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy concerning the last days, Acts 2.17. And from the perspective of the Old Testament, this phrase doesn't, isn't, isn't what's happening now as it was with Peter, but it looks forward to the age of the Messiah, which was yet to come. And as an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah prophesied, therefore, concerning the coming of these last days, this gospel era, and he uses the thoughts and the forms and the figures that were familiar to his people. And therefore, we don't interpret them in every respect literally. He's using what they understand and know, how they speak, and what God's worship was like, and so forth. He uses those figures to speak of what's going to come. And notice, in particular, what we read concerning those days in verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations 
shall flow into it. Now in this verse, Isaiah uses a picture that was very familiar to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The mountain of the Lord. They spoke of Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. And because of its comparative elevation to the hills right around it, God's people would speak of going up to Mount Zion. If there was a festival, they would go up because it was a higher elevation. Every year, pilgrimages, uh, pilgrims, they would make their way to the city to celebrate the annual feasts. Especially, you remember, in Passover time, in Jesus' day, for example, at that time, the population, it would swell from about 50,000 to about 200,000 at Passover time. And the picture of the Israelites in festive spirit filling the temple area in Jerusalem. This was a very familiar picture. And so it's easy to visualize how Isaiah would use this imagery to depict, you see, what God was going to do in the future. And yet it would be on an even bigger scale, not just a couple hundred thousand Israelites, but on, on such a scale that would extend not only to the rest of Israel, but also to the worshipers throughout the entire world. And in the imagery that Isaiah uses in verse 2, he depicts the supremacy of Jerusalem's God. God reigns in Zion. He speaks of Mount Zion as being a mount that will be lifted up on high. And there's both a geographical and I think a spiritual reference here, both. Now geographically, Mount Hermon in the northern part of Galilee, this was the highest mountain in Palestine. It rose to 9,200 feet. And its snow-capped peaks were famous in Israel for their beauty. Mount Zion, on the other hand, was just 2,400 feet above sea level. And so you see Mount Hermon, it was more than four times higher than Mount Zion. And the psalmist also seems to have a comparative humble elevation of, Jeru- of Zion in his mind when he writes about another mountain in the north, Mount Bashan, which was 5,900 feet. It, it also 3,500 feet higher than Mount Zion. He says the mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? So this high mountain, why would it be jealous of a lowly mountain like Mount Zion? Psalm 68. So compared with Mount Hermon, compared with Bashan, compared with Mount Sinai, Mount Zion was a lowly hill. And this is always the way God does gospel work. He doesn't cover it up, and, and he doesn't do it in grandeur and majesty. He, he does it in, in a humble way. But the day is going to come when everything's going to be reversed. The day is going to come when Mount Zion will surpass all others. Even Mount Gerizim, you remember, was higher than Jerusalem. But as Jesus emphasized with the Samaritan woman in the gospel era, true worship will not just be distinguished by its physical setting, but also by its spiritual, spirituality. They will worship in spirit and in truth. And one of the distinctives of worship in the New Age is its universality. And so we read in verse 3, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. In the last days, worshipers will stream into God's house from every kindred, from every tribe, and among God's people, He will reign supreme 
among his people throughout the earth. The worship of God is going to triumph over every other religion, every other form of worship. And among God's people, drawn from every part of the world, God will be all in all. This is the picture that Isaiah gives to what God is going to do in the future in his salvation of his people. But now in verses 5 through 21, the prophet transitions from the theme of salvation to the theme of judgment. And the contrast could not be more stark. Three times he alludes to a day or the day of the Lord. In verse 11, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Verse 12 speaks about, again, the day of the Lord. Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Other prophets use similar language. They speak of that day or the day of the Lord. And this speaks to us about their view of history. History doesn't go in a circle like the Easterners believed. It's marching forwards. It begins with the first day. That's where it begins. The day in which God created the heavens and the earth. And it ends with the last day. The great day of God Almighty. When God will be seen in power and glory. Now few things excite more interest than the study of last things. Even in Amos' day, sermon tasters began to look forward to the day of the Lord. They had their theories of the day of the Lord like lots of people do today. Like people in our own generation, they seem to have had a carnal interest in prophecy. So Amos has to tell them that that day is going to be darkness, not light. You shouldn't be excited about thinking about that day. It's going to be darkness. And while the last day will be a day of salvation for the redeemed, it will be a day of judgment for the ungodly. And so Isaiah describes those of his own generation, and he describes those of every subsequent generation as a people. They trust in their soothsayers. They trust in their riches, their armaments, their idols, verses 6 through 9. And then he stresses that for such a people, the day of judgment is going to be two things. It's going to be terrible, and it's going to be humbling. It will be, notice he emphasizes, terrible. In the time of the judges, the Israelites hid themselves in caves from the Midianites, Judges 6. And Isaiah urges sinners to do the same thing in an attempt to hide themselves from the wrath of God. He says in verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty. And the rock to which he refers the, the land of Judah is mountainous. There are many caverns, many crevices. And under ordinary circumstances, these provided places to escape from an enemy. He speaks of the dust. If they can't find a rock or crevice, even a hole in the ground might be found. And terrified defenders will even try to find refuge in a little hole. And of course, it's impossible for men to obey this command because it's impossible for sinners to hide from God. They can try to find a cave. They can try to find a hole. But it will be no use. And that day, for the first time, man will be truly confronted by the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, Isaiah stresses. And the appearance of Yahweh in judgment is depicted as something most glorious and yet at the same time most terrible. This is reiterated again in verses 19 to 21. 
They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In the last day men will be overcome with absolute terror. They will vainly seek to flee from the face of the Lord. They will endeavor by every conceivable means to escape. And as men and women are terrified by a strong earthquake, and they're completely unable to resist the power of that earthquake, when the judge arises in that day, he will shake the earth. The whole earth he will shake mightily, the prophet says. And it won't be just a minor tremor. It'll be the shaking that brings down the most well-built buildings. It'll be a scene of absolute terror. In their desperation, men will seek to hide themselves from the all-seeing eyes of an omniscient God. And it's going to be too late. In Revelation 6, the Apostle John describes the preview that he was given of that day. And the language is very similar to what we have just read. The kings of the earth the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Three times in these verses, Isaiah speaks of the terror the Lord. This will be the terror of all terrors. Between now and then, nations fall into distress in different ways. They fall victim to drought, in another place to war, another place to disease, another place to economic collapse. And great upheavals do take place throughout history. And during the past year, Millions in our nation have been gripped with fear of a virus. They have been afraid more than they ever have perhaps in their life. And elsewhere, hundreds of thousands have been compelled to flee in helpless terror from a tsunami. And these events, these are reminders to the children of God that the Lord is daily shaking the earth because of its pride and because of its idolatry. But all of these temporal judgments, all of these shakings, that happen from time to time will be completely eclipsed on that day when God will shake at last not only the earth, but heaven. Truly, the day of judgment will be terrible. The prophet emphasizes, secondly, it will be humbling. In verse 10, he refers to the majesty of God. And the same word, when ascribed to man, is referred to as his lofty pride. And so in verses 11 and 17, this is the way he speaks. The majesty of God, the pride of man, the lofty pride. Pride is man's attempt to reckon himself majestic. It goes before a fall. Isaiah and Hezekiah learned that lesson. Pride is peculiarly detestable to God. 
He says, pride and arrogance and the way of evil I hate. Proverbs 8 and verse 13. And notice how this last day is going to be a humbling of the proud sinners of this earth. Verse 11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men will be bowed down. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of the Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon the ships of Tarshish, and upon the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be brought down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Proud thoughts that sometimes even express themselves in haughty looks or an external swagger sometimes even. These things are, these are obnoxious to God. When we see a ball player, and I say this of my favorite team, if I see it on my team, or if I see it on an opposing team, I see a ball player that is just oozing with pride, thumping his chest and bragging about the home run that he just shot, that he just hit. I want that guy to have a, be brought down a notch or two. That's what I want to happen. And, and sometimes if I see a whole bunch of them on an opposing team, I just want them really to be defeated just for that reason. It doesn't always happen. But why? It's because there's this instinctive detestation, you see, of the, this arrogance. Now, this is going to take place in the ultimate sense of the last day. Pride is going to be brought down. On that day, the lofty looks of proud men, they will be brought down in utter shame and utter disgrace. And on that day, the Lord alone will be exalted. Man has had his day. Now Yahweh has his day. There's coming a day that will belong to Yahweh of hosts alone. And on that day, everything haughty, everything lofty will be brought down. All human pride of achievement will be laid low in the dust. Nothing will be spared in that day. Trees, hills, towers, fortified walls, all of this he speaks of in this chapter. Ships, every other expression of man's pride, all of it's going to be thrown down by the jealousy and righteous anger of God when he arises to terribly shake the earth. And amid the ruins of this complete collapse is going to be found strewn on the ground. This chapter tells us all kinds of idols and images of sinful men. It will cast them away now as useless uh, burdens. Maybe you have watched histories of World War II. You've seen what the European cities look like at the end of World War II. You can't find a single building that even looks like a building anymore. The whole city is a pile of rubble. You wonder how they ever rebuilt from that. How they ever recovered. And you think about the fact, some of these were beautiful buildings. They would have been like our capital that's beautiful downtown. Some of the other, the education builder, building with its pillars, it's, it's, it's beautiful to look at. And now it's a bunch of rubble. Nothing but rubble. And the rubble, you see, is what's left of man's great architectural achievements. That's what happens in a, in a war. In the last day, the whole world's going to look like that. 
All of the achievements of men are going to be rubble. It's going to be smashed down. It's going to be stamped in the dust. It's going to be put to everlasting disgrace. And on that day, every symbol of man's achievement, every symbol of man's pride, it's going to be ground down to nothing. And on that day, the Lord alone will be exalted, and every created eye will be awestruck at the sight of the majesty of the Lord. Unregenerate men, so long the usurpers of center stage, will be banished from that stage forever. And at last, man will feel himself to be nothing, the nothing that he is, and God will be all in all. Verse 22, therefore, is the practical lesson that we are to learn from these two things of the chapter, the terror and the humiliation that Isaiah depicts. And as Morse Roberts observes, these words form the concluding advice given by God to us in the light of the carnage and terminal devastation to come at last upon the whole earth. It is as though the voice of God were heard floating over the wreck of ages on the great day with its solemn echo reverberating back in time to us who live before the event. See, this is to be the end of all man's temporary greatness and glory. Therefore be wise and make no more of man than is his proper due. Man is but dust and all his glory will shortly descend into the grave with him. Therefore take your eyes off man whose breath is in his nostrils. Now from the entirety, therefore, of this spine-tingling chapter, we see that this is a well-founded lesson. This lesson of ceasing from man. You see what he says about salvation at judgment. And now in the second place, I want you to notice that it is a very difficult lesson. It's difficult for us to learn this lesson that we're to cease from man. It's contrary to our nature. Ever since the fall, man is constantly robbing God of glory and constantly ascribing to himself the importance and veneration that is not rightfully his. And there's there's nothing more absurd in the history of mankind than the fact that man is always boasting and man is always trusting in man. And to worship something superior to myself, you see, this is bad enough if it's not God. But to depend on somebody that's just like me, whose breath is in his nostrils, this is stupidity. This is to allow man to usurp the place of God, and it's exceedingly perverse. And we're apt to teach this, we're apt to treat this sin lightly. But God has pronounced a curse on this insult to his majesty. Cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, he says to the prophet Jeremiah. And because we're so prone to give man that place that is only due to God, God tells us that this sin is so provoking to him that it brings us under the anathema of God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And because this lesson is so hard to learn, The sobering, terrifying chapter that precedes our text has been given to us. Two realities highlight how difficult this lesson is to learn. Notice, first of all, that man's notice that man's tendency to elevate man is very pervasive. It's pervasive. It goes through all of society. 
and our perversity, we've turned every sphere in which we live into a theater of praise for man. In recent years, this has been on full display in the political realm. I'm thankful for many of the things that our former president did, but I found his perpetual bragging to be really nauseating. And I was disturbed over the way people, even Christians, were unwilling to recognize character flaws. I was thankful for what he did, though. And the same swagger, it characterized the president that went before him and the way he was treated like a rock star everywhere. And this is, this is exceedingly disturbing to me. And I'm not wanting to get into politics. I'm just going to say here that the sin that we're talking about, it's a bipartisan sin. And the spiritual decay of our country is so extensive that only divine intervention can deliver us. It's right that we support those policies and those candidates that more closely align with Scripture. It's right that we try to find such and vote for such. But in doing this, we must remember, dear people, that even the best politician does not deserve blind loyalty. We must remember the words of our text, cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. The same principle holds true in this sports arena. We talk of people that achieve goat status, greatest of all time. But when we idolize athletes for their achievements, we forget that the well-chiseled physique of that athlete who smashed former records will soon be in a coffin being eaten by worms. We idolize musicians and actors, and this is equally offensive to God. This is why I can't tolerate watching the Grammys or the, or, the, uh, or the Oscars. It's just nauseating to watch. The mutual adulation, it's absolutely nauseating. And in the realm of scholarship, whether it's in science, whether it's in medicine or technology or any other scholarly discipline, all too often men are treated like gods. Before the scholar gives his lecture, he has to have a, have a five-minute preface by somebody listing all his degrees and all the wonderful books he wrote and all the amazing things he did. It, it, it's just it's nauseating to listen to. Let's never forget that just like the architecture of the last day being to, reduced to rubble in that day, all the achievements of athletes, politicians, musicians, actors, scholars, whoever they might be, will be rubble in the last day. Every conceivable way, we tend to elevate man. The world, it, it wonders with great admiration as it witnesses the manner in which financial wizards get higher and harder, higher in, in the financial world. And we tend to admire men for their power. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the, on the, on the planet at that time. But God quickly sank Pharaoh and his whole glorious army beneath the waters of the Red Sea. Proud Nebuchadnezzar, he had his sanity taken away. He was driven out into the fields to eat grass like an ox. The Lord doesn't take pleasure in a horse or in the legs of a man. And these are just a few examples of man's pervasive tendency to elevate man. It is a hard lesson to man, for man to learn. He just doesn't get it. He keeps on doing it everywhere. 
And as we continue to consider the difficulty of this lesson, let me also point out in the second place that this spirit creeps in even among God's people. Sadly, when their people begin to heap upon them accolades for their oratorical skills or perhaps for their personal magnetism, too many pastors like it. Too many pastors like a little more of it. And they tell a few stories that everybody's going to like, they think. They do this and that because they like for people to be drawn to them. They readily oblige their their hearers with witty one-liners. And in far too many places, congregations, they come to church to be stroked and to be caressed by soothing words. And far too many Christians, they shun those services you see in which they are made to be afraid of the sight of a holy God for their sins. And instead, they choose places of worship where the, where the music or the sermon, it just strokes them and makes them feel good. They feel like if the church didn't do you, if it didn't make you feel good when you walk out there, there's something wrong. I, I could find a different church. If he was still around today, how many would would uh, go to the church that Isaiah pastored? How many of you think would go to his church and listen to this sermon? How many people? It would, it would not be a big crowd, I don't think. People don't want that. Now let's remember that the preacher, he's to come into the pulpit, yes, and he's to preach boldly, but it's to preach a message on behalf of his master. He's not there to ingratiate himself to the people. His voice, his delivery, his manner, his bearing, it's to be in keeping with the type of message he's preaching. Whether on the given Lord's Day, his sermon is a warning to flee the wrath to come, or whether it's a text that speaks of the glad tidings of the gospel. And in either case, the overall tenor of his ministry, it must be humbling man and elevating God in the eyes of of his hearers. Now if the overall concern of the pastor is to be the humiliation of man and the exaltation of God, as the people of God enter into God's house, as you enter this place, remind yourself of Isaiah's exhortation, cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. In other words, you need to come into this place hoping to hear a word, not just from man, a word from God. Not to be entertained by a clever preacher. And accordingly, as I preach, I must never be grasping for your praises. I must be content with the praise and honor that comes from God alone. And both in the pulpit and in the pew, we must remember that Paul, an apostle, Apollos and Cephas, they are nothing in themselves. And that their charge is simply to be faithful as stewards of the mysteries of God. We must move on. Having noted that this is a well-founded lesson, and that it is a difficult lesson, I want to show you now in the third place that this is a very sensible lesson. It makes sense. Our text gives an exceedingly accurate Description of the condition of mankind. Fallen mankind mistakenly, and fallen mankind continually places all of his confidence, all of his hopes in man. Vote for me, I'll fix it all up. And we vote for him. And we 
get disappointed. It doesn't fix it all up. But we keep on going back to the same mistake. We put our confidence in man. And when we consider man's true nature, we see man's folly in doing this. And so the lesson that we must cease elevating man in our esteem and our trust, this is a very sensible lesson. There are good reasons to take heed to this exhortation. And these reasons grow right out of the understanding of the nature of man. And here I want to remind you of what the Bible gives by way of answer to the question, what is man? In answering this question, what is man? I'm going to try to be very concise here. First of all, man is a very frail creature. Why would you trust a very frail, frail creature? This is the picture that's conveyed by the description of our text. Cease from man, verse 22, in whose nostrils is breath. Man's life is transitory. It's hardly anything, there's hardly anything more temporary than a breath. An adult at rest typically takes between 12 and 16 breaths. Uh, take not, it's not in a day, 16 breaths in a minute. They're here and gone, many breaths. We don't even think about it. And during strenuous exercise, of course, we breathe more rapidly. And in our nostrils, our text says, is breath. And when God created man, he breathed into him the breath of man, Genesis 2, 7. And therefore, man doesn't exist by his own strength. He was given breath. He was given life by God. And as breath was breathed into him, it could be taken away from him. Our earthly existence, it depends upon our breath. Something so little as our breath. And when our breath is taken, we die. And so how insubstantial then is man whose breath is in his nostrils? What foolishness it is then to place our confidence in a creature whose very life depends on a thing that so easily could be taken from him, his breath. Man is a frail creature. Notice also man is a dying creature. With all the COVID deaths this year, do I need to remind you of this? And due to other causes, how many of us have had to bury parents and had to bury loved ones in recent years? Some of you perhaps have had very close friends, maybe your closest friend to you like Jonathan was to David. And now your dear friend is gone. And I'm not going to accuse you of having made that lost loved one your idol when you simply grieve over that loss. But consider, consider making your pastor, a spouse, a child, a friend, consider the folly of making that person into an idol. And if you could see that idol a short time after she or he died, you would ask that the coffin would quickly be closed because it would be so stinky. You wouldn't want to look anymore. That's your friend. That's your loved one. And it's right that we appreciate and love somebody that enriched our lives for a few years. But such ones, they're only loaned by God to us for a short time. And then they must be given back. And it's folly, therefore, to give a poor, dying creature the kind of esteem and trust that belongs to the glorious, eternal, immutable God. Furthermore, man is a fickle creature. Sadly, apart from the grace of God, man's affections can quickly change. How many there are 
with whom we once enjoyed fellowship in this place or maybe in another place who have since earlier times have become embittered against us. We never would have thought that it would have happened. And as man's breath is here and gone tomorrow, today he loves, tomorrow he hates. And there were so many who proved to be a disappointment to David that he says in his haste, and we read this right in Psalm 116, all men are liars. He jumped to that conclusion. They've all deceived me. They've all, they've all been betrayed me. Because if we make flesh and blood our trust, we're going to find out soon that we've leaned on a broken reed. Who's going to stand with us when we're slandered? Fair-weather friends are a dime a dozen. But those that stand when everybody's against us, these are the rare ones. And therefore cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils and whose loyalty might be just as fleeting. Furthermore, man is a defenseless creature, especially if you're tempted to place your confidence in a lover or in a leader who is not a true follower of the Lord Jesus. Remember the graphic description that Isaiah chapter 2 gives of those who the last day will frantically be searching for a cave or a hole. You love that person. You've got a romantic relationship with that person. You've got some other kind of a affection for that person. And you go, your heart goes after that person. You know that person's not walking with God, but you like that person anyway. You need to, to consider what it would be like to hook yourself up lifelong to such a person who's in the last days going to be crying out to God to, and be crying to the mountains even to cover them, to hide them from the, the wrath of the Lamb. Therefore cease from man. Cease from giving any mere mortal that place in your heart that should be only for God. Man is also an insignificant creature. Notice how our text ends. Cease from man in his nostrils, his breath, for of what account is he? And the implied answer is obvious, it's nothing. He's of no account. What estimate is to be given to a man that you're tempted to trust in? None whatsoever. He's here today, he's gone tomorrow. In a moment his breath, it departs from him. Of what account is he? He's insignificant. Don't place your trust in such a person. Don't idolize such a person with the honor that should only be for the Lord. Well, we've seen that our text provides us with a well-founded lesson, a difficult lesson, a sensible lesson. And now I want to point out to you in the fourth place that we have here a religious lesson. This text is a test of all of our religion. The words cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. These words, they're a test for everything we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. The way we conduct our worship services, it ought to result in men and women going home after our service with their hearts deeply compressed with a sense of the glory and the majesty of God. Amazement and awe, these are the proper reaction that we ought to experience, at least frequently, when we attend a worship service. In the church at Corinth, there was a free-for-all going on. Everybody was competing with their gifts, and they wanted to be in center stage. Confusion reigned as a result. And the situation it resulted in which an unconverted visitor might think that these people were absolutely nuts. Instead, Paul says, there needs to be the kind of decorum that would cause unbelievers to be convicted by all. 
That's what they should be experiencing, he says. And thus he says, and here I quote, the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and he will report that God is truly among you. 1 Corinthians 14. And yes, there are times in which the comforts of the gospel, they will give great peace, great joy. It's right for us to preach also those aspects of the word of God. But there also ought to be times in which we wish to go away from the service in silence so we can just think about what we heard, so that we can get alone with God, so that we can get, get right with this God. There ought to be times in which we seek to conceal our tears from our fellow creatures after hearing God's word. There should be other times when we go forth exhilarated, yes, inspired, ready to get to work, eager to go spread the gospel. But even such moods, they shouldn't be divorced from reverence and holy fear. The words of our text, they also imply that the opposite should not characterize our worship. And to get right to the point, entertainment has no place in God-honoring worship. Yes, there are other occasions in which entertainment is, is entirely fitting. We have our Labor Day picnic, and we enjoy playing games together, etc. There are, there are times for such, for such activities. But entertainment does not belong in a worship service. And this isn't to deny Luther's point that the real preaching should be, in the highest sense, entertaining. We should be so entranced with what God is saying to us that the sermon foots by it. It's hard for us because we're frail, fresh flesh and blood. But we should find entertainment in that sense, in the highest sense of the word. But the idea that the preacher's sermon, it ought to loosen up the crowd at the beginning of a sermon with a few jokes. This is a desecration of his sacred calling. And yes, there are times when uncontrived humor, it makes a point. We read this even in the Bible. We read this, for instance, about the guy that makes up the excuse that the lion is out on the street just because he doesn't want to work. Stupid excuse. It's humor, you see, to make a point. And yes, there are times in which such things rightfully can enter, but this never is to be used with a review of entertainment. The rest of the service also, it's man's place to recede from view in order that God may be all in all. The hymns that we use should not be characterized by man-centered sentimentality. The best hymns are those that expand our views of God, both of his holiness and also his tenderness. That's why I chose that hymn right before this sermon. Wonderful hymn by William Faber about the majesty of God and yet the wonder that he stoops to ask for our love. And the best preachers, they are those who impress the people that are present with the realities of another world. And the worst preachers are those that treat God's house as a place of laughter and amusement and whose great aim is getting their hearers to think that they're cool. That's the worst kind of preacher. I don't want to be that kind of a preacher. Our text also teaches us that in our Christian experience, there ought to be a place for self-abasement. And this abasement, it needs to be divorced or I should say it should not be divorced from the sweetness of Christ, the sweetness of the gospel. And often they go together. I think, for example, of a passage in Jonathan Edwards' memoirs. He writes about a time when he was riding out of the woods. 
And he had an extraordinary view, he says, of the glory of the Son of God and the sweetness of his grace. And at the same time, this view, he says, of the glory of Christ and of his grace, it was joined with deep abasement. You see, great exhilaration, happiness, yet weeping with tears and being abased, all the same experience. He says the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near it can judge for about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, empty and annihilated. He's abasing himself, you see. Empty and annihilated, to lie in the dust, and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and a pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Well, taking such a low place and having low thoughts of ourselves, this is not natural to our sinful flesh. John speaks of the pride of life. And perhaps among the various uh, implications of that phrase is the idea that pride is a lifelong vice for us. It's 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 the pride of life. And so Morris Roberts, he writes, the way of self mortification is irksome to flesh and blood, but it is the only safe way. Pride follows our heels more closely than our shadow. It cannot be beaten away or bribed away. It is a cancer of the soul. It swells us up with ludicrous self-importance. It chokes the life of prayer, stifles our usefulness, and will, if not brutally treated, sap the spiritual life within us almost to death. This is a test of our religion, both in public and private. But finally, This is also a practical lesson. The lesson is simple. Cease from man. This doesn't mean that we're to run away from all contact with human beings. We're to be hermits. Go live in a a lonely mountain somewhere. But it does imply that with most of us, the way we deal with man, it needs to be changed here and there. Cease from man is is the lesson. It's a practical lesson. And in your notes, I, I've given several points, but I'm only really going to be talking about just one as we close. Cease from giving man undue honor. There's an honor that's to be paid for all. As the apostle says, honor all men. There's a measure of courtesy, a measure of respect that's to be paid to everybody, and especially to those whose office demands it. So Peter adds, honor the king. We're also told to give honor to whom honor is due. But there is a giving of honor that's inappropriate. Having prayed for powerful preachers, we must not ruin them with our flattery. We need to be careful here. If we're excessive in giving praise to men, we provoke God to take them away from us. Or else we provoke him to expose to us the feet of clay that they have. God is jealous of his glory. He says, my glory I will not give to another. Now, this doesn't mean we're to run to the opposite extreme. There's some people that think it's their calling to to keep the preacher humble 
And so they're always looking for things that they can pick apart with the sermons. And, and I, I'm thankful for people, by the way, that come and interact with me. And, and I'm instructed sometimes and I have to change my thinking about something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of person that just is picking everything apart every Sunday. And such people, they, they do nothing but tear down the faithful servants of Christ. They're a menace. But there are ways of expressing thanks for a sermon that's been preached that is edifying. It's not puffing man up. The faithful preacher, he wants to know that what he preached helps somebody. And so it's helpful to, to know if something was helpful. But we need to take care, you see, that we not glorify men with the glory that only belongs to God. We mustn't puff men up with the kind of flattery that's going to destroy them. And neither the people nor the preacher must ever allow themselves to be tempted with the idea that the pastor is infallible and therefore we're going to follow him over the cliff. In this way, some of the church's most gifted men have proven to become the church's greatest enemies. The time does not allow me to elaborate on our last two practical lessons. I simply leave them with you to work out their implications from the text. Cease also from placing your ultimate trust in man. Not only cease from exalting him, but also cease from putting your trust in him in an undue sense. And cease also from the fear of man. Well, as I speak to you, I'm always aware that not everybody in this room knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you that are unconverted, cease from giving honor to men that's due to God. And above all, quit giving honor to yourself. You say, well, Pastor, how do I do this? I don't think I'm always bragging about myself. You give honor to yourself when you trust yourself to save yourself. When you think it's by your good works, when you think it's by your prayers, you think it's by your tears, and you think it's by this or that that you do that you'll be saved. Quit looking at your feelings. Quit looking at your prayers. Quit looking at all the things that you do. And look away from yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, I say. And what is said of man at the end of our text? Of what account is he? This applies to you as well. All of your efforts to save yourself. Of what account is it? And the only thing that's of account. The only thing that's worthy of God's acceptance. Is the perfect life of the Lord Jesus and his perfect atonement upon the cross of Calvary. Look to that, and not yourself, that you might be saved. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess that as we hear the sobering words of the prophet of old, that there's not a one of us that can say that these things are totally irrelevant to us, that we have always been humble. We have never acted in a way contrary to what we have read and what we've preached here this morning. We know that that's not true. Therefore, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our carnality, of giving honor and trust to those that, and the kind of honor and trust that belongs to you alone. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon our nation. Our nation is defying you. It is getting more and more rotten by the year. O Lord our God, just as 
Judah had to be judged, just as there was a day of reckoning that came upon Judah. We pray, Lord, that we would see that if we don't repent, that we too will, will suffer a day of reckoning as a, as, a, as a country. And we pray that your people, even if the nation goes apostate, we pray that your people would not do that. We pray that you would purify us in these days, these evil days in which we live. Help us, O Lord, in the various ways that we have spoken about this morning to cease from man and his breath is in his nostrils. And those that do not know you, O Lord, may they cease from themselves and may they go only to the Lord Jesus for grace and for forgiveness and salvation. We pray these things in his precious and blessed name. Amen.